Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. It's one and only V the Grill Economist coming to you on this edition of Rogue News in the Morning. And we have with us the man who needs no introduction. The one and only London Paul from the SeriousReport.com. You can go check out London Paul over at the Serious Report for all your thing, all things geopolitical, geostrategic, geoeconomic. Paul's breaking it down. He's been ahead of the curve so many times. It he's so ahead of the curve that it angers people and people get in their feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't get in your feelings. Put on your thinking caps, whatever he says, write it down, and uh, and it'll it'll soon come to pass. Don't get mad. Just learn. Just learn. That's all I gotta say. You know, we got CJ working the airways, making sure the broadcasts come out crispy and clean as usual, working the the flux capacitors and the dilithium crystals, and he is loaded on caffeine and CBDs today, this morning. And speaking of CBDs, you can go check out our paid sponsors, MyCBDEdibles.com. MyCBDEdibles.com for all your CBD edible goodness. And guys, also, real quick, one thing I forgot to mention about the Serious Report, for less than the price of a cup of Lapa Flapa Lape from Starbucks, you can get yourself a monthly subscription to the Serious Report, and you'll get daily briefings from Paul. Daily briefings from Paul. Rumor has it that the president of the Philippines is getting daily briefings from Paul right now. Duarte. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he's a listener from what I'm hearing. <laughs> and with that being said, Paul, CJ, what's going on, gentlemen? Good morning, guys. Good morning, C, uh, CJ and uh, V. Yep, good morning. Good morning, and, and welcome to all those uh, tuning in. And in, in the chat room, it's a lively group uh, this morning. So thank you, everyone that's uh, listening in. Appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Gentlemen, there's, where do you want to begin, Paul? There's a lot going on. There's, 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 <laughs> it's like every other – a lot going on is an understatement. It's like every other week something's happening, and uh, I see uh, exceptional stand withering away, uh, you know, just going back into the shadows from whence it came. Uh, looks like there was a major, some major victories on Nord Stream 2. You have the Israelis um, – I mean, my God, the amount of money they're throwing in the air with this Iron Dome – they're going to be running out of uh, of money very soon. A uh, lot of things going on, Paul. I don't know where you want to start. We can go to Asia. We can go to the Middle East. We can go to uh, the latest Putin address, some of the new weapon systems that, that the Russians have just uh, rolled out, which is just mind-blowing, especially that underwater drone that is the equivalent of an underwater Sarmat II uh, that can cause tsunamis. It's incredible. I, I, I don't know, Paul. There's just so much to unpack. I'm just going to cut you loose, and I'm going to shut up. <laughs> well, I guess we should start with Israel. Although we'll yes. be we'll be 
we'll be a bit careful how we phrase things because uh, you don't want to hurt feelings, Paul. Yeah, well, you don't want your detractors to shut you down. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want that. <laughs> you, you, you know, look, I'm not going to regurgitate everything that's happened in, in history since the formation of the nation state of Israel. It's well documented how the, the, the basically the Palestinian people are increasingly living in smaller and smaller lands. They've had settlements taken over. They're forcibly removed from homes. And as I've said elsewhere, the Gaza Strip is an abomination to humanity. Yes. Twenty, It's about 25 miles long by about seven and a half miles wide. There is over two million people squeezed into it. And quite how the world sits there and says absolutely nothing about it is appalling. And I'm saying that, and I'm not interested in the politics. This is purely from a humanitarian perspective. You should no nation on this planet should condone what happens there, and and there should be outrage from every single nation. But we know why that isn't the case, and there are a lot of political reasons why that's the case. Uh, from the U.S. perspective, there's obviously the enormous influence of the Israeli lobby not just in terms of politics, but economics, finance, etc. And I think it's quite interesting, he just in the last few days were, suddenly the US is coming out saying, well, we've been talking to Netanyahu and telling him to, uh, you know, bring the, you know, this, uh, <clears throat> well, which is sort of mini war, a conflict, an understatement, but to bring it to an end. And, you know, it's just political bullshit because, Effectively, Netanyahu saying, well, I'm going to stop doing it in a few days anyway <clears throat> when I've reached whatever his objectives are, for want of a better description. So the US will sit there and say, okay, well, we'll just time it. That We'll say a few days before we're telling you to stop doing this. And then, in fact, of course, uh, miraculously, when you've decided that you've wreaked enough havoc on Gaza for now, then you'll stop anyway, and everyone will go, oh, look, the United States helped to uh, broker a ceasefire, even though four times now there's been a UN Security Council resolution proposed for a ceasefire between Hamas and the Israelis. And who's the nation who's blocked it every single time? The United States. So what a surprise. So there's, the problem from a European perspective is, and, and generally in Western politics is, no one wants to be seen to criticize Israel because they'll be branded anti-Semitic. And for a politician, that's political you, you suicide. Know, you know what's funny? You know what's funny, Paul? Mm -hmm. That word anti-Semite, when 99.9% .9 of the people that live there or the, or the ones that are in power there, are not have, they don't even have a drop of Semitic blood. Mm -hmm. I, I find it hilarious. <laughs> well, it's just one of... Unseen contradictions and, and, and you know what's funny? I, I was watching an interview. I think it was uh, somebody on, uh, from Al Jazeera or something like that. They were interviewing some um, American politician. I forgot who the politician was. I think it was at that time. I think it was uh, oh god, one of the Republicans. Anyway, I forget. But anyway, the um, the guy was uh, the reporter was uh, pressing him on the some of the things that are happening with Israel. I mean, everything from using depleted uranium rounds to white phosphorus. I mean, just terrible, terrible atrocities uh, that are happening. Uh, humanitarian crisis on the umpteenth level. 
And then the guy is like, well, you know, that's just uh, an anti, you know, it's, it's uh, you're, you're saying anti-Semitic things. He's saying to the, uh, to the Al Jazeera reporter and he goes, but sir, how is it anti-Semite? Because I am a Semite and he's a Jordanian Heshemite, you know, and uh-huh. he is a real Semitic person. <laughs> you know, people have no idea. This is how, inf- why are we so damn infantile in the West? It beleaguers me, Paul. It beleaguers me. God. Well, yeah, but it's again, it's back to one of those unfortunate statements that keeps rearing its head. People in Western politics are wedded to this to to the system. They're they're so ingrained in it that even if they had to do a one eighty, it was the right thing to do. They won't do it because doing a yeah. one eighty in Western politics is deemed the end of your political career. Or if yep. you criticize Israel, it's the end of your political career. You'll be thrown on the scrap heap. And then they're sat there going, well, I don't want to be thrown on the scrap heap because I've got a family. I've got a mortgage to pay. My career's over. I could be on the scrap heap myself. So I'm not going to take that risk. And so, I mean, yes, you do have exceptions. and There are some people who are very outspoken about it, but uh, but they're few and far between. But one of the other problems with Israel, and this is forget sort of the Western perspective, which which is partly governed by this. And one thing we can certainly say during the Trump era was on many occasions, the US were having to rein in Netanyahu, who was, to, to put it diplomatically, hell-bent on, um, on launching a preemptive strike on Iran. And the US had to keep saying, look, it's not happening. No, you're not doing it. If you do it, you're on your own. But that's part of the problem where there's this kind of fear, if you take it into a broader context, even in the West, that we know Israel has a nuclear deterrent, and we don't actually know what that deterrent is, to what extent could they, if they felt they were being pushed in, into a corner, do could they then just say, well, sod this, we'll just launch a, a preemptive nuclear strike in the Middle East, and who knows what the consequences of that would be aside from the obvious consequences. And and I think this partly also plays into, into the Russian perspective. China less so. China doesn't have quite the sort of influence um, in the Middle East with regards to Israel. It does economically. But of course, Russia does have influence um, over the Israelis. And I think part of the problem is because people often say, well, why aren't the Russians harder on the, the Israelis? I think part of the issue is there is a genuine fear because, I mean, the one thing you can say in very polite terms about Netanyahu is he is unpredictable. And in a region like that, if there was a preemptive nuclear strike, we have no idea what that might lead to ultimately. So I think that's part of the reason. And it's not an excuse or a justification. We're not here justifying anything. We're just saying this is the reality. Again, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing. It's saying the, this is, these are the facts. This is what is going through nations' minds. Yes, it shouldn't be this way, and there should be a far more robust response to, to everything that's going on inside Israel, inside the Palestinian settlements. But the other issue with all this is, is internally within Israel currently, the motivation for this strike is because Netanyahu is politically on the ropes. There was almost the formation of a coalition government without him. And of course, if he's 
outside the political system, then all these you know, alleged allegations, shall we say, against him could then pro be processed in, in the court of law. And, of course, that would have, could potentially have serious ramifications. So it's in his interest to stoke up all these tensions, stop the coalition government forming, and maybe, you know, if he might then be able to persuade some hardliners to form another coalition government. With him. So there's that motivation. Well, he, he, he's trying to form one with the settlers' party. I mean, he'll just form it with anyone and then just tell them, you know, in, well, this is how we're, this is how the government works. But the other the other internal problem that exists with all with what's happened and and it's just like this scab that gets ripped off every six months, year, three months, whatever. But internally within Israel, and this is a dynamic perhaps not everyone's aware of, or maybe a lot of people aren't aware of, is they're kind of mixed between between the Israeli or the Jews and the Arabs is is growing smaller. There's about twenty percent of the population are now Arabs, and at some point that dynamic is likely to shift where the Arabs become the majority. Now, okay, we're not talking about this happening today, tomorrow, or anything, but at some point that that dynamic is going to happen. And what's the ramifications there? if this is allowed to continue because the hostility, the anger and the resentment is growing. And okay, there's no justification for 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 this to, to, to continue without somebody saying we have to address this. And at some point that someone's gonna have to address this. And the nations in the West, and for that matter, China, Russia, are all gonna have to get together and say, look, we can't allow this to happen. You've got to put aside all this nonsensical anti-Semitic rhetoric. There is a serious problem brewing. It's only going to get worse. This is causing a humanitarian crisis of, of literally biblical proportion. It's created more hostility between the two, two people, so to speak, and this is only going to get worse. So what are we going to do about it? Now, you would hope that, but I'm not very optimistic, that whenever this ceasefire happens, which it will do, uh, probably in the next few days, but after that, someone somewhere is going to say enough's enough, but they probably won't. They'll probably all just forget that it ever happened and then wait for the next time, you know, that there are other incidents happen. But it's certainly escalated. But the one thing it's highlighted to to Israel's neighbors is, is that there's obviously ongoing barrage of missiles coming out of Gaza by Hamas, Hamas, sorry, is actually depleted. Uh, Israel's defense uh, yep. capability to the extent it's effectively all but ran out of missiles. And this is why the US is giving them once again another handout to buy all these missiles and in inverted commas because they've literally been depleted in terms of their defense capability, never mind their offensive capability. So yeah. the issue with that is the Middle Eastern nations are looking at this going, well, if you suddenly had a major war and and you had Hamas on one side, maybe Hezbollah on the other side. This could pose a serious problem. Israel could be in serious trouble. And this, of course, worries other nations in terms of security. What's the implications for this, you know, regional security? But it's also highlighted to them that actually Israel is quite vulnerable. Okay, yeah, it's got a nuclear deterrent. And the argument is, is if they were to ever unleash this nuclear deterrent, I think the first nation that would actually step in and respond would be actually Russia, ironically. Yep. I think 
Netanyahu knows enough that, okay, he might have the threat of this, and yes, that might unnerve nations in the world, but ultimately, if they were to follow through that deterrent, I think Russia would take action directly against Israel. I don't think the United States or anyone else would get in the way and say... I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that as soon as they're trying to launch a nuke, if whether it's an ICBM or even a submarine-launched nuke from Israel... I wouldn't be surprised uh, if a Zircon would hit them right there on the runways before they even got a chance to take off. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, yeah, and, well, yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I don't envisage that is, is a realistic, I don't want to tempt fate, obviously, and say nothing, you know, anything's possible, but because it is, it is something that preoccupies nations. And that's why, if we think about it, this is why, Israel so hostile towards Iran and its nuclear capability because it's paranoid enough inside the Israeli parliamentary system with regards to Netanyahu that he actually fears if they have a nuclear deterrent, then you know that sort of equalizes the, the that threat in the Middle East. It's like you know it's like Russia and the US cancelling each other out. Okay, we know Russia's militarily in terms of. All technology, but nuclear missile technology, miles out. But it's not the point. The point is they can kind of cancel each other out. Well, if suddenly there's a new another power in the Middle East, even though Iran has no intention of having nuclear weapons, but the mere threat of it, it's going to it sort of puts a different perspective on the sort of regional security. When suddenly, okay, hang on, is there another nation that might actually have a nuclear weapon, and therefore? Israel might curtail some of its more aggressive uh, regional policy on that basis, not least the fact, of course, Israel's extremely worried that Saudi Arabia is developing uh, nuclear weapons and is actually being utilizing some of Chinese technology, not saying it's for nuclear alongside weapons. Alongside with the pa uh, the Pakistanis who've been helping the Saudis with that yes. as well. Yeah. So that changes the whole dynamic. Now, and that's one of the principal reasons why Israel's so fearful and, and the whole JCPOA thing actually interestingly there has been some significant progress in the last week or so they haven't got the US back in yet but it may take a bit longer but there is a lot of encouraging signs that the US will with uh, rejoin it and of course in the process they'll start to relax the sanctions on Iran which should never have been put in place anyway and that's going to, of course, be potentially another reason why this conflict is escalated between Hamas and, and the Israelis as well. Because you know, it's the classic thing where when you have a situation where it looks like there might be some um, reproachment between the US and, and uh, Iran in this case, then the Israelis are going to react accordingly. And... I noticed there's noises coming out from the Israelis trying to sort of in some way attribute some of the current problems with Hamas to, to Iran. So it's the age-old thing. Let's try and stoke tensions. Let's try and convince the Americans that you don't want to go back into the JCPOA with, uh, with Iran. But the truth of the matter is, and I've said this before, the U.S. should never have left. It was a stupid uh, error in judgment by the Trump administration. It actually handed all the initiative to the Iranians. And 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 that's why Iran sort of sat there now going, well, if you don't rejoin, fine, we'll just enrich uranium to, to 95%. And 
you know, we'll just see how the Israelis feel about that. And because they know as well, obviously, from an economic perspective, you know, the whole playing fields change for Iran with the, the enormous deal it signed with the Chinese, which I know people in the West say isn't reality. Well, it is reality. And they also know that if there was any preemptive strike on Iran, the from the Israelis, the Russians are not going to sit there and just do nothing about it. And I think that's been made very clear to the Israelis for quite some time that that would be completely unacceptable for, for reasons we shouldn't even have to state why it's unacceptable. But setting all that aside, the problem with Israel and Palestine is, is ridiculous. It's gone on for far too long. There is unex It's just wholly unacceptable what's going on. And yeah, this is a matter of when innocent people die as a result of this. And, you know, there is, yes, it's happened on both sides. There are always innocent people who are always caught up in these situations. And I, and, I, and to me, I'm not interested in the politics. I'm interested in the humanitarian aspect. I'm more I'm concerned about what happens internally within Israel itself between different sort of no sections of the population. Then there's Palestine as well, which is a, a huge problem. And someone needs to sit there and go, you know, if we're the multipolar world, which we're going to, someone needs to start taking a bit of responsibility and saying to Israel, enough's enough. We're not tolerating this anymore. You're going to come to the negotiating table and no, no more excuses. You're not going to get the, the US doing this. They're just not going to do this. But if there's enough... Uh, weight of, of popular opinion in the East. And, and that's the thing. The US is now starting to react and going, well, China and Russia are making these statements, whatever it's about. And the world's galvanizing behind. Well, we have to be seen to be doing something as well. So if there was a sufficient weight of or gravity coming from the East, from Southeast Asia, from the Russians, Chinese, and, and other nations to say, when there needs to be something done about this, eventually the US will cave in because it's terrified now to be seen to be <clears throat> the unipolar world that it is so we're now reaching a situation where when something happens and and this we'll talk about the Nord Stream 2 thing in this context because it's a great example of what I'm saying where suddenly the US is going hang on we can't we can't even offend our own allies so we're going to have you to know, start to raise you know the great irony policy decisions Paul you know the great irony of Nord Stream 2 it makes me chuckle. It makes me laugh. And if anybody wants more and more proof, not conspiracy theories, not conjecture in a in a circle jerk forum that you find somewhere in the Internet and thinking that you're actually talking with any sort of intelligentsia here. But the funny irony of it all, that the, that exceptional stand is on its way out is this. Within a span of two weeks, Paul, exceptional stand has accused the Russians of hacking the colonial pipeline. And... Within a, a week after that, they are, they are now backing off and approving all of a sudden, very approving all of a sudden of the Russian pipeline that's going into uh, Germany, the Nord Stream 2. <laughs> the, the irony is not lost on me, Paul. <clears throat> no, I mean, and it is, you, it's a very good point. I think we probably, yeah, we could say an awful lot more about Israel and Palestine, but I don't think it needs saying. I don't think I need to <clears throat> emphasize my disgust with what's going on any more than I already have done. So um, I think we can move on to, yeah, Nord Stream 2 is a very good example of this enormous shift in in terms of from the old reality, the unipolar world, to 
what I've <clears throat> excuse me referred to as the new reality, the multipolar world. And I'm sure everybody knows what Nord Stream Two is about. It's another sort of obviously a pipeline to ship uh, LNG to uh, to Europe. <clears throat> Europe pays a very very competitive price. The U.S. during the Trump administration tried to you know put sanctions in place and block progress in terms of of getting the pipeline laid and and said it was a matter of of, of secure you know it was affecting europe's uh, energy security and europe's looking at it going hang on so you want us to ship your lng at 40 50 percent increase in price with logistical problems huge expense in setting up lng terminals in wherever it might be on the coastline, Germany, well, it doesn't really matter where it is, but the point is it was just a non-starter. But there was a lot of fear in Europe and saying, well, <clears throat> contractors pulled out and, and because they were fearful of being sanctioned. Now, obviously, in recent months, even after the Trump administration has, has long since departed, the Biden administration was still threatening everyone with sanctions, saying, you know, I'm sorry, this pipeline's not going to be built. That was the, effectively the statement. And then out of the blue, they come out and say, well, actually, we're not going to sanction uh, developers, contractors. We're, we're, we're effectively going to not green light the, the, uh, the pipeline being completed, of which there's, I think it's about 97 or 98% complete. There's just a section now in German waters that is due to start at the end of this month. So, what, 11, 12 days, two weeks. And the reason is, is because the US has looked at this and gone, well, <clears throat> we still don't want the pipeline. We still don't want Europe getting cheap LNG. So, and we'd rather they bought US LNG, but <clears throat> we're really pissing off our allies in Europe particularly the Germans, and we can't, we just can't do this. anymore. So we're going to have to back off. But <clears throat> does it mean they've completely backed off? No. You can guarantee when the pipeline's in, <clears throat> they'll then try and do, try another maneuver to sanction someone and prevent LNG actually being piped to Germany. And um, will they succeed? No, but they've already basically said, well, we'll let the pipeline be created, but you're not having the gas. You know, it's just, absolutely ludicrous but again this is just political grandstanding because the u.s on the one hand is now going well we can't be seen to be aggressive with our allies anymore so they're backing off in one set but they're going but we're america and we still have to be seen to be the exceptional nation we have to be the hegemonic power so we're going to have to keep continually bullying and threatening everyone to make them believe that you know in fact uh we still are the nation we want the world to believe. But as I keep saying, it's the emperor with no clothes. And everyone's looking at them going, no, that doesn't apply anymore. And I remember saying on robots it maybe three, four years ago that the U.S. used to be in, in meetings with G20, G7, whoever, shouting the odds, telling everyone what to do. When the U.S. walked out the room, the rest of them went, okay, so what are we actually going to do now? And... That's now translating into visible policy decisions where nations are starting to look at things. I mean, Australia is a great example where, I mean, it's learned a very brutal lesson with regards to China in terms of its economic policy because it was just basically doing what the United States wanted and now it's looking at itself going, well, we're economically destroying ourselves and now it's trying to... Uh, 
backtrack and say, but China's very important to us economically because they've realized it's absolutely pointless and that it's self-destructive to, to you know, effectively endorse U.S. foreign policy decisions on your own doorstep. You have to do what's right for your nation. And, and I think politicians are now starting to be a little bit nervous because they understand the broader global economic financial problems. They're, they've started to realize that uh, a lot of their policy decisions are falling apart, and they're actually quite fearful of, of the people in their nations and the consequences of economic destruction. And why I keep coming back to the point, none of this pandemic was ever a plan. It's the worst possible outcome that could have ever happened for the, the Western empire, for, for a want of a better description, because they're looking at everything now going, we are having enormous internal problems in nations and and they're finally realizing there's no answer to these problems and they're very very fearful of the backlash of people because as i always say how you get away with controlling the west was making people believe the system actually much as they hated it in some senses it kind of worked for them you know okay i'm doing all right i could be doing better but I've got a job, I've got a roof over my head, I can buy a car, I can go to the pub on a Saturday, whatever it is they, they think is important in their lives. But when you take that all away from them, which increasingly is going to happen as economies collapse, the people are then going to say, hang on a minute, this system isn't, no, it's not even working at all for me. And that is the thing they fear most because the, you control people in the West not by dictatorship, or some totalitarian, I don't know, technocracy, as people seem to think is going to be rolled out. You control them by keeping them passively thinking that even though the system is not ideal, it kind of works for them. And it's keeping that sort of big sort of meat in the sandwich of, okay, you've got the, the sort of rich elite or upper class people as on at the top, and then you've got so-called working class people at the bottom, but it's keeping that huge middle-class band in the middle. Just keep them sufficiently happy. We don't need to worry about the the people who've got the money because they'll always think they've got money and power, and we don't need to worry about the, the, the working-class downtrodden because they're always downtrodden, and they just seem to put up with this. We don't know why they put up with it, but they do. But it's when you upset that balance in the middle, and you t and they're the ones the most leveraged, they're the ones that've got the most debt, the, the, the ludicrous mortgages because they always buy houses at the top of their price range they can afford and thinking that mortgage rates will never change and they'll always have a job and when that all goes away then you then then the whole dynamic shifts and that's where we're kind of at in that regard and it's an extremely important example of why you in in western nations you never control people by by a dictatorship because then you wake the masses up to the, to the thing they don't think exists. And, they, and why do they need to change that mechanism? It's worked perfectly well for decades and beyond, and, and going back through history. You don't need to change that. It's pointless changing it. It works. You don't want to have a, a, a Western society that's going, hang on, I'm not very happy with the lifestyle I've got. I'm not that you've taken everything away. My pension, I thought, was worth something. It's now worthless and... And I've lost everything. As soon as you do that, you shift the dynamic in a way they've never wanted to see happen, which is why they tried to contain post-2008 inside Wall Street the banks. They said, well, that way we contain the problem. But once it leaked into Main Street post-2008,
2020 pandemic, for want of a better description. That changed everything, but infinitely for the worse, for, 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 what, for want of a better description, what people perceive to be power brokers and cabal, elite, whatever you want to call them in the West. Shifting gears, uh, Paul. Mm-hmm. We're seeing the uh, the economy starting to overheat. We're seeing inflation. We're seeing building materials. I mean, my God, I'm trying to get pricing done on on fences and this, that, and the other, and the price of lumber's through the roof. Oh, we, yeah, there's some artificial scarcity there. But what do you think now? Now that the Fed is admitting that, hey, you know what? The, 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 the inflation's through the roof. There's got to be a way we can, uh, you know, curtail it back. And there is no way. The Western banks are overheating. They're running on E. And more and more stimulus is creating more and more capital malformation, creating more and more capital destruction. How do you think this plays out big? Well, we've said for longer than I care to remember, maybe even the, one of the first times I was on road, that the West was always heading for QE to infinity. There was no way... They were out, all this taper talk is utter nonsense. It was never going to happen. Once once you have QE and zero interest rate policy, and that you talk about transitory, that should be transitory. You put it in place to resolve a short-term problem. Maybe it's in for three months, six months maximum to dig you out of a short-term problem. <clears throat> well, they didn't. It's been in place for over a decade. And once you have a system, it depends on having enormous bloated balance sheets that uh, – at central banks that you can never remove. So it was inevitable that, I mean, it was surprising they managed to contain this bubble inside Wall Street as long as they did. And so when people say there's no inflation, well, what do they think the stock market is? What do they think the bond market is? What do they think real estate prices are? Why do they think the housing market is as bloated as it is in terms of prices? And this asset price inflation of a, that's the example. But, of course, as I just said, it's now seeping into, into Main Street. So everything's getting more expensive. So, But it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But we know commodities are getting more expensive. So when commodities become more expensive, everything becomes more expensive. Services do. You know, goods you buy, everything uh, just gets progressively more expensive. But the problem the Fed has is it can't raise interest rates. Uh, it's not an overheating economy because the entire economy is only predicated on QE and debt. If you stopped QE tomorrow and stopped all the credit, the entire, forget the United States, let's just use the West as an example, the entire Western financial system would just collapse within, within within days, weeks. It wouldn't, it just couldn't survive. So it's not an economy built on on substance, on manufacturing, or you know, you're producing goods and you're selling them, and you're actually you're just creating this pseudo economic growth through price inflation as well. Because what do they do? They measure GDP on goods and services. Well, everything gets more expensive. They're going look. The economy is growing. The economy isn't growing. It's price inflation that's that's actually completely skewing the the idea of this economic growth and and they talk about all this money that people have had saved and they're suddenly going to spend it into the economy well i did some i'm not i've got time to do this day but i did on my own podcast all this analysis that 
basically proves this is this is a myth. There isn't all what one and a half trillion or whatever dollars in in the United States that's waiting to be spent into into the real economy. The issue of price inflation is, in some senses, a little bit puzzling because yes, we've certainly seen a hike in commodities prices, but some of the shortages that I'm is is a little bit puzzling. I mean, semiconductor shortages, yeah, we're being told the shortages, and and I know myself, I ordered a new laptop and then normally it'd take a week and it took like four weeks to arrive um, so clearly there are some issues in terms of uh, semiconductor shortages but and and supply chain issues I mean that's also a problem where container ships are in the wrong part of the world so there's lots of empty ones idling around while someone else wants to and particularly Southeast Asia is shipping enormous amounts of goods well they don't seem to have supply chain issues the way we do necessarily in the west um, but it's not exactly clear what the issue is because my argument is well have we seen a reduction in terms of the output of, of semiconductor chips globally that's not clear I, I don't think there's necessary evidence that is absolutely the case so i think is this more the fact that we seem to have had this shift really bizarrely from 12 months ago we all know People were frightened because of the pandemic that they'd run out of everything. So people were stockpiling everything in supermarkets. Supermarket shelves were empty. And the whole toilet roll thing in the West was absolutely bizarre. I know myself going in going, is there ever going to ever be toilet roll ever again available? Because as fast as it appeared, it was selling out. So the people were stockpiling. But what seems to be happening is that, that now producers, suppliers, people who take raw goods and, and make them into products, they're stockpiling all those materials because I think they believe there's going to be this enormous economic explosion in, in the West. And they're going, well, we want to make hay while the sun shines, so we'll produce all these goods because we're going to sell them into, into the economy. And I think they're creating a pseudo-demand. And that's what seems to be the reason why there's this belief of shortages because – they think the demand is on the basis of this huge economic explosion, though I don't see evidence of that happening. Now, does it mean it won't happen in the future? No, but I don't. But I work on the basis of my actually seeing this, and I don't see evidence of that. So I think this is just an expectation. So that's part of the reason why there's supply chain problems, because people are hoarding inventory. And inventory can be actual goods it could be raw materials commodities someone could be hoarding enormous you know amounts of semiconductor here's what's something nefarious why is four to five of the largest lumber and paper companies in the in, in the united states hoarding lumber especially if there's a a massive spike in demand supposedly if there's a housing market is booming and uh, supposedly, housing prices are through the roof, supposedly. But you and I both know, Paul, that mortgage applications are some of the lowest they've ever been. It's been pretty tepid. Mm -hmm. So suppose this housing market is booming, right? I mean, this, this is the illusion that the banksters want to put out there. So if the housing market's really booming, why are you hoarding supplies? The only reason why you're hoarding supplies is because you see something that is about to happen. 
you are sensing that there's going to be some sort of a disruption in price soon. That's the only reason. It's the same reason why vendors in Venezuela won't readily sell you something today if the price could fluctuate tomorrow. And they hoard. And that creates a negative feedback loop in the supply chain. You're, we're seeing this in a lot of core building materials. Lumber, uh, uh, copper, I mean, the, the steel. The, things are like that. It's starting to reverberate. And you only do that is if you're seeing disruptions that are about to happen down the road. What do they know? What does Georgia Pacific know that we don't know, right? These uh-huh. are the major timber and paper mills that are out there. What's happening that they're looking so far beyond that they're seeing this and something is happening that is affecting them, Paul? Yeah, well, I was going to come on because obviously we always go, well, okay, here's this. But yes, you, you, you've. You, I was just going to say that's another scenario uh, or another aspect to this equation. Most definitely, I think there is some element in certain sectors where they're seeing potential disruption. Or, you know, the, as you say, the idea is, well, I could sell it, you know, at significantly higher prices tomorrow uh, than I'm selling today. And so if, the other factor is, and this may surprise people because, I would I would actually argue that China could be could well be responsible for part of the inflation is because we know for a fact since the start of the pandemic China has been buying up every single commodity it can get its hands on. I mean it, it basically supported the entire oil sector post when the you know when the price crashed to into negative territory back in April last year. It's basically bought every barrel of oil it can get its hands on. It's built, it's put new storage capacity in. But we know it's not just restricted to oil. They've bought up enormous amounts of copper. They, they, they suddenly admitted they're buying gold again and telling all its central banks, which is stay at home, to buy it. But they've been buying it anyway. Enormous amounts of silver, aluminium, zinc. They've, never mind uh, also agricultural products. Um, I mean, people say, oh, well, they've been really good because they've been buying up soybeans from the U.S. Yeah, not because they want to help the United States. It helps them. It benefits them. So they've most certainly been buying up enormous amounts. And we can't actually know what they've been buying because a lot of it, they're putting strategic reserves, which means we have no visibility. That's why China doesn't have less than 2,000 tons of gold. It has about 40,000 tons because they're stuck in strategic reserves, which is a matter of national security and no one ever discusses possibly it. even possibly even more paul possibly yes. even more. well i'm just you know i'm used i've said that figure for a number of years it's just a ballpark figure but it's the same with silver i mean they actually admitted in one month recently bought 175 metric tons of silver that's what customs is telling we know for a fact they've been buying silver uh, in, in other enormous quantities through this opaque kind of thing that goes straight into strategic reserve. That may actually account for why there's a, there is definitely a silver shortage in Western nations, and that's a whole separate subject we'll part for another day. But they may be actually causing part of this inflation because they're hoarding all the, the, uh, the, the inventory. There are all these commodities, and... Everyone, there's other nations going, hang on, we, we need some of this. Where is it? We haven't got it. We can't get hold of it. Um, and that's why we don't know enough of, of 
or visibility of, okay, there's all the semiconductor um, supply chains has become a big issue. Suddenly, the United States is having an aneurysm about it. And then someone said, well, yeah, but do you know how long it takes to, to build a semiconductor factory? And by the way, you still need all the raw the, the raw uh, sort of uh, con, you know, elements, constituents of making semiconductor chips. Where are you going to get source them from? Uh, so, you know, Europe's the same. Uh, the South Koreans are talking about building a new semiconductor, half a billion dollars investment. And then someone went, yeah, but it'd take a decade to build it. I mean, what use is that today, tomorrow or next week? So that could be part of the problem. So it's not exactly clear why there is yeah we know why there's some supply chain issues we know why there's bottlenecks because in one example china ships a whole bunch of stuff to europe or to or to the united states and they are literally queuing up on on the the west coast of the united states coming from china from los angeles open wherever and they're all queuing up waiting to offload chinese goods into into the united states so there is an enormous amount of stuff being shipped. Someone's quite happy to, uh, you know, at the factory gate to buy this stuff. But then, but then the problem is, a lot of the time, there's a lot of ships just idling around with nothing, and they're all going back to China empty. So there is also the price cost in terms of, of shipping. Shipping costs have gone through the roof. So you know, the person at the factory gate has to to absorb the cost. Are so they going to pass that on to the consumer or? Or destroy their profit margin. Well, I'll pass it on to the consumer unless they, you know, they want to wipe themselves out in the process. So that's another aspect that shipping costs gone up. I know someone who who obviously deals a lot with importing um, Asian food, uh, and they have a you know, they have a a shop and an online shop where they sell it in the UK. And I was talking to them a couple of days ago, and they were saying. You know, I'd ask you, you know, how's the shipments going? And, and and part of the problem they have is things get shipped by rail on land. They, they end up in the European Union. And the European Union now is being extremely difficult, as Britain is with the European Union, into this, you know, in a post-Brexit world. So that stuff gets stuck there for how, who knows how long because there's all this extra bureaucratic nonsense. So that's another problem. One thing they also said is though all the packaging of everything coming in now is is getting more expensive. Why? Because the raw materials that you make packaging with are becoming more expensive. And that's the bottom line when all the commodities get more and more pricey, everything gets more expensive, whether it's the packaging you put in or the food, you know, you might if you ship they ship stuff from from Asia, then there's the packaging, the foods in, there's the food itself, and the list goes on and on. And logistics costs go up so everything becomes more pricey and they're obviously suffering a fair degree of price inflation as well so that's just one example from their perspective and i'm sure you could multiply that a thousand million times in whatever context international trade operates so there's a lot of factors in this but but it's absolutely clear we're definitely seeing price inflation and the fed has gone from we can never reach 2% inflation when, in fact, it was running at 8 to 10%. Then it was, well, actually, inflation may get above 2%, but we're going to time average it for, I don't know, 5, 10 years. And even if it gets to 2.5%, it's still not above our benchmark. So we don't have to do anything with regards to, to interest rates because 
of course, we can't do anything with interest rates because if we rise, raise interest rates, we destroy the stock market. We, 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 and we're already trying to manage crippling debt. Well, what's raising interest rates going to do to a debt-ridden uh, economy? It'll just collapse it. So they can't do it, but then they have to admit, well, actually, inflation might get to 3%. It might even get to three and a half percent. It might get to, I mean, I'm waiting for four, five, and six, but they'll go, but it's transitory. So, because they can't touch interest rates, they can't raise interest rates because for the reasons we've just said. So, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's nothing they can do. And we said a while ago, they can't raise interest rates, they can't lower interest rates. And, and in the process, QE to infinity continues, and the rest of the world's looking at the United States going, well, it's obvious you're just printing money for, for you know, because your budget deficit's rising. You can't, no one will buy your debt, so you just have to print more and more money. The Fed balance sheet's rising, although the Fed's trying to hide some of that by siloing treasuries all over the world in the Caymans and everywhere, and, and even siloing them in China. And then everyone goes, but China's buying U.S. treasuries. No, there's just US, more U.S. treasuries appearing in financial institutions in China, which are then, it's construed that that's sovereign nations buying treasuries. It's not. So the world's looking at this going, well, this Fed balance sheet's growing, going through the roof, and they're going, I don't think, I don't, I, I increasingly don't want to trade in dollars anymore. I'd rather trade in national currencies. I actually don't trust the US because if we, we trade in dollars, they might sanction us and cut off our supply to SWIFT, or they, they may do a, a, an Iran on us, and uh, so therefore that's another reason why we don't want to trade in dollars. But equally, people are looking at this going, well, the U.S. is printing and debasing the currency into oblivion. Why would you want to trade in dollars so increasingly? Nations are also going, well, maybe we don't want to trade in dollars anymore. And if the Fed's balance sheet keeps growing exponentially, that just increases fear. And ultimately, what will kill the dollar is confidence. It's all these other ideas that you know, is not. It's what kills a currency is confidence, and when the confidence drains out of nations, it eventually drains out of uh, financial or sorry um, corporations. Which is why, like obviously, Vale in Brazil trades in commodities with China and the yuan now because it doesn't trust the dollar anymore. That's okay. That's one example of many, but it's indicative of this problem that. What's killing the dollar is is Fed policy and uh, and QE and zero interest rate policy is just it's a self fulfilling prophecy that once you put it in place for more than a few months and which is why I made the point to Western governments don't ever do this because you knew once they did it, it it's like the junkie with the they, the drug they just have to keep getting the next fix and once we got to sort of the end you know. The first lot of QE, and after a year or six months, it was obvious they were never going to do anything. You knew it was the end. And as I keep coming back to the point when the dollar's dead and it's over, it's over for the Western Empire. They're finished. They don't have any leverage anymore because without the dollar, what leverage do they have? They can't threaten nations anymore. They can't sanction nations anymore. They can't cut them off from supply. They can't pay people to to invoke regime change they don't have the capability to put ngos in and finance that because they're not going to raise the money anymore no one's going to no one's buying the debt so the dollar goes the empire dies with it so 
the idea that they're going to destroy the empire and rebuild it. And I'm emphasizing this point, and I know I've probably some people are listening have heard me say this many times, but there may be people who aren't, but that's a critical part of this, is once it's gone, it's over. It's, it's gone. Don't <laughs> just come back. They don't no, miraculously they don't. reappear and, and the world goes, yeah, we'll take your dollar but, again. But, even but, though you... but, Paul, but Paul, you you don't understand, Paul. You see, uh, you're all wrong, Paul. You see the... Uh, this whole thing about the the bipolar world, you know, the bipolar world, you know, the you know it, the Western banks own everything, man. They're just going to recreate a new empire. Folks, well, you got to understand this. Like what Paul said it best, right? When empires go, they're gone. There's no coming back. It's over. And a lot of people, this is you know, this is why the show is like critical because we need to get out of this binary thinking. The world's a lot bigger and a lot greater than you think, number one. And this is multifaceted and multi-layered, number two. The third thing is every single Western Rothschild bank is broken and solvent. So which – this is what – you know, part I remember years ago when I was debating these guys who were, you know, thinking about the U.S. is going to go into a collapse and then uh, there's going to be a global takeover of the entire United States of America. And at that time, what's going to happen is that they're going to rush us into FEMA camps. And I was on a show, Paul, a few years ago, and um, and the host is like, oh, aren't you worried about the FEMA trains and the FEMA camps? I said, well, who's going to pay for it? <laughs> and he just paused. He's like, you're right. No one's explained that to me. Because guys like you and myself, we look at the money end of it, right? The money, who the hell is going to pay for it? Okay, oh, they're going to come over here. They're going to put us in FEMA camps. Okay. When the economy goes bust and the dollar is worth next to toilet paper, actually, toilet paper is going to be more valuable, as we've seen through Corona. But um, who's going to pay for it? Nobody. Oh, the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers are controlling all the Western banks. The Western banks were created. They built up China. The, the Western banks built up China. The Western banks, they control Russia. And what's going to happen is, uh, is uh, you know, they're going to come in and they're going to take things over. Which one of the broke, insolvent Western banks are going to do that? <laughs> well, I, I think the other point is a lot of people don't realize is without China in 2008, the West would have collapsed. China bailed out the West and stopped it collapsing. Correct. And not a, lot, a lot of people realize that. And the, of course, this time around, China's not going to do anything of the sort. But but at that point, it was it was expedient to do so. Why? Because from a Chinese perspective. If the West had collapsed, they were in no position. They weren't, again, yeah, were making strides forward, but what they've done since 2008 bears that out very sensibly, where you'd say, well, they're in no position at that point to, to start to assume a more you know, a higher profile in the world stage. The Belt and Road didn't exist. It was in planning. They were thinking about it. And that's why post-2008 there was this big acceleration. But, yeah, the, the Chinese bailed out the West. They stopped the West collapsing, yep. and 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 obviously, in hindsight, okay, it was it was the right decision to make. But obviously, the West did the wrong thing in terms of what it should should have been done. Well, from from a Western Empire perspective, I mean, people will argue actually, maybe in the end, it was it was good they did what they did. But you know, but the problem is, the vast majority of Western people are going to suffer enormously because of the consequences of that. So I'm not exactly on the side of the fence that said, well, we should cheerlead the fact that they've destroyed their own empire because we suffer the consequences. But yeah, there's there's too much stuff said 
in the alt media that just doesn't bear any resemblance to how the world operates. The world doesn't no, operate does, all, in this there, very so simplistic much. view that people seem to have, you know, as to how you know nations operate and, and central banks operate and how governments operate. This is just a complete misrepresentation because there's a lot of people out there making statements who know nothing about any of this. They know no, absolutely they don't. nothing. I, I've, I've, just, heard it, you know, I've heard it all fall. I remember... The whole FEMA thing. Then I remember, um, what, what was it? It was uh, the Chinese. Chinese are building ghost cities, Paul. Empty cities. Uh, they're just ghost cities. They're going to come here and they're going to capture Western women and bring them back. And because uh, and of one child, one child policy, they people don't understand. The one child policy was only for the native Han Chinese. There's multiple different ethnicities there. The one child policy occurred to the native Han Chinese. The ghost cities, well, they're all inhabited. Why? Because they built that up because the 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 the, the populations began to grow. Then there's concentration camps in China. Concentrate. I already I already destroyed that myth, and Paul's done the same as well, folks. There's a lot of things you need to look beyond your own programming, unless you start doing either commerce or business with people from the other side, and or travel over there and really experience it for yourself. I'm telling you, look. Paul, I'll, I'll say this, and I'm going to have some Westerners on. Starting very soon, uh, Siege, we're going to get Robert on, on on Monday. This guy is going to be amazing, amazing. This guy, this is a guy who's who's you know who, he used to work for the DoD, was top computer guy. We're going to have him on soon. Paul, you and I speak to lots of Westerners in China, and the Westerners that I speak to, guess what? They're all they all fall into the category of free market capitalists. Okay, and Paul, if if I said, hey, um, hey man, um, Alan, hey, um, Jim, hey, um. Corey, if you, you guys want to come back to the United States, I'll pay you $10,000 just to come back to the United States and live. I'll pay you a million dollars to come back to the United States and live. They wouldn't do it. Why is that? Why are they more happier in Shenzhen than they are in, in New York? Why are they more happier in Beijing than they are in Boston? Well, I mean, do you know you, what? It's funny, funny you mentioned this. It messes with people's realities, Paul. Yeah. Do you know what? Because obviously, yeah, I know I talked a lot. About what China's doing, and there's people out there who think I'm some spokesperson for, for for the Chinese government, which I'm not. But but I was quite I was quite worried when 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 I we actually got people getting in touch with us going, well, based on what you told me about China, I, I went and and visited, and and now I've I've emigrated to China. I'm living there, and it's the best decision I made. And I was like, no, we we did tell you. What we told you about China to to uh, to to tell people to go and live there, but people went and they did. And we've had, I think it's now twenty or thirty people who subscribed to us who've all gone, and they've gone. We're really happy, and we we glad we moved, and we really like our life here. Now, I'm not telling anybody to go and live there, any way, shape, or form, because it will work for some people, and other people will hate it. That's right. just that's just the way it is. But my the point I'm making is that I've known countless Western people who've had a very jaundiced view of China and actually gone and visited and come back and gone. It's nothing how I expected it to be. And and this is one thing that came out, unfortunately, what's kind of caused this perception was that this really anti-Chinese sentiment came about during the Trump administration. And I said back in 2018, you're, you're going to see anti-Chinese propaganda on a level that is nothing is I'm sorry is infinitely greater than what happened with regards to Russia. Surprise, surprise, it's happened. 
But what this did is because Trump was the president and Trump was making comments about China, everybody's perception is, well, that's what China's like. But of course, Trump was, was just feeding the party line because it was just part of a, a propaganda exercise to try and demonize China because Trump stupidly wanted to go into a trade war, which he could never win. And, and then subsequently, we had in the latter stages of his administration, Pompeo stomping around the world, telling everyone China's the, the evil bogeyman and the world's going, well, actually, no, they're not. And, and we're not listening to you. Nice to see you. Goodbye and pack your bags and leave. Yeah. But, the, but the point and the problem is it's now, of course, given this idea that once Trump's gone, that Biden's in and Biden's going to invite the Chinese in. They're just going to walk in, turn turn the United States into China Mark II, and you're going to all be under surveillance and they're going to do all these matters. Of things. Then nothing could be further from reality. Whatever your perception of Biden is, and I've got zero time for Biden in any way, shape or form. But the point is, that's not reality. But how much of the alt media is telling people, well, that's what they're doing. That's what Biden's doing. He's going to let the Chinese walk in. China's going to yeah. come in and take over the United States. China has got no intention of taking over the United States. They have States no interest. Because, it's shocking to yes, No it's interest. And, and they realize how absolutely the most dumbest thing they could ever do, even if they wanted to do it, and they've got no intention of doing it. Yeah, and, All and you China ask them why. And you ask them why, and they look at you and they're like, because we're not stupid like you. But the other thing is... We're not, we're not willing to chase to empire. No, all China wants the world to do is go, well, you don't have to embrace them. Just accept the Chinese for the way they are. They have a different mindset, different culture. We're China. We want to cooperate with you. you we don't want to impose our will on you. We don't expect you to adopt Chinese values. Just respect us for what we're doing. We'll respect you. We can work together. And that's all China wants in reality. That's the bottom line. The rest of it is nonsensical Western propaganda. Does that mean China's perfect? No. Does that mean China can improve? Yes. Does it mean China doesn't have problems? China has lots of problems, but nothing that the West ever tells you about because the West doesn't have a clue or those who do have a clue want you to have a distorted perspective. But China has internal challenges that it constantly has to deal with. And that's yep. because... If they, if they continue to not improve the livelihoods of the Chinese people, the, the CCP will be out of office in two weeks or a month yep. or six weeks. You cannot control a nation of 1.4 billion people. And this is why I come back to this whole idea. You can put a totalitarian dictatorship and control a nation the size of America it will never happen. It is an absolute impossibility. Be, because you just couldn't, what, a, a country of 4 million square miles with 340 million people, and someone seriously saying to me, yeah, we can control this. We can put you all in FEMA camp, and all that nonsense that's been doing the rounds for longer than we can. It's by, by some very like low-level, low-IQ alternative media idiots and hacks who've never traveled out of the country, who's never done any sort of commerce or business. They have no business acumen, and they're... Their talent is to rile up hysteria, pure hysteria. And folks, this is why I like have I love having guys like Paul on. I uh, love having guys like Matthew Aridon, especially you know when you're describing a multipolar world and a, a free and open economic system that is modular that other countries can connect to. That was the dream of the founding fathers of the United States. That was the dream of the revolution. 
1776, which coincidentally never happened in the vacuum. There were other powers at play in 1776 that allowed 1776 to happen. But the dream of the founders was to have a modular, open economic system that countries can connect to, utilizing mutually beneficial trade that, in other words, all boats rise with the tide. That was the dream. That was the dream, not the unipolar nightmare that we've been living under for the last several decades. The dream was the open system. And guess what? It's being built today. There is a country out there in the world. Is it perfect? No, it's not. You might not like its culture. You might not like its food. You might not like its language, right? You might not even like their hairstyle. It's okay. (laughs) But there's a country out there, okay, for the first time, when I talk to people in Africa, and when I talk to the to the uh, to the the public works minister from from like places like in Liberia, and when they say things like, "Hey, you know what? For the first time in our lives, resources are leaving our nation, and things are being built in its place." For the first time in our lives, in our generations, we're seeing our capitals connected. We're seeing high speed rail put in. We're seeing infrastructure and electricity and power plants instead of what the West has been giving us. And is it perfect? And they'll tell you, no, it's not the most perfect thing. Sometimes it is perfect. It's wonderful. Sometimes it sucks. But you know what? At least we can talk and negotiate to it. And, Paul, here's, here's, here's what's incredible to me. The, the, the public works minister of Liberia, which I'll, I'll have him on one day. We just got to coordinate the schedule, me and him. But I'll tell you this. One of the most telling things to me was this. When he was meeting with the U.S. diplomatic, uh, there, there, there was a, a meeting in, in, in Europe, I believe it was, and there was – you know, African dignitaries there from many African countries. And a group of African dignitaries got together because the, 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 uh, our own Marie Antoinette, which is Nancy Pelosi, decided to also show up in Europe. <laughs> and the African dignitary said to Nancy Pelosi, hey, we would like to meet with you. And the aide said, said, okay, wait here. And she went and tried to get Nancy, and then the aide came back and says, no, um, uh, Miss, uh, uh, Congresswoman uh, uh, Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi will only, at, the, at that time she was Speaker of the House, Speaker Pelosi will only, only meet with world leaders. And then the public works ministers, the transportation ministers, the various uh, African countries and commerce ministers, they were sent packing, left. Those same ministers showed up in China. Kind of like on an out short notice, guess what? They were picked up from the airport. They were put on limos. They were put on like these beautiful luxury vans, and they were taken. And guess who they met when they were in the waiting? Guess who came out to meet them? Xi Jinping. They said that is the difference. When there's a problem, we can go directly to Beijing. There's an open line of communication, and we can renegotiate our contracts. And that is why our debt has been restructured 86 different times. Two times there's been a credit default option. And twice there's been forgiveness in multiple African countries. Is it perfect? Hell no. Nothing is. But is it a whole lot better than what the U.S. and what the West is doing? Hell yes. So if the, if the African countries, which they like to make you think these are a bunch of, you know, you watch National Geographic, you think these are a bunch of uneducated, primitive people running through the woods with grass skirts on and chicken bones through their nose, Right? But there's some engineering, medical, and scientific talent in Africa. And when they're trying to do something to better their lives. Folks, let me explain to you what being American is. Our founding fathers dreamt. When you read their writings, they cared deeply. And this is why we're going to have Anton Chaikin back again for, the, for, for his book, Who Are We? 
they the, the founding fathers cared deeply for their for humanity, for their human brothers in other nations around the world. Because they understood the way that humanity is able to rise is through a free and open economic system. So when these guys are able to to choose this, if they're choosing China over what you're offering, how messed up, how deplorable, how disgusting, and how backward, and how evil is what the West is offering, that they're picking China's over yours? Well, Think the about problem it, folks. is, well, wake up. yeah. Yeah, the problem as well is that you know what the West has has treated Africa in the most appalling manner for hundreds of years. I mean, it's colonialism, imperialism, just basically stealing everything uh, in in history or the slave trade, etc. I mean, we China never did this to. You. All right, here, here's the funny thing, Paul, Paul. I just got to interrupt you real quick. We we, here, no, we, no, we have okay. another genius, another genius in the chat. Here's this guy. China has a social credit scoring system in place. It's totalitarian, isn't impressive. China is just a large piece of Freemasonry jigsaw. Believe me, they want to ruin and depopulate all over. All right, let me explain something to you guys. You know, I, there, there's quite a few people that I deal that I've dealt with in the past that deal in in credit cleaning. If you f up your credit in the United States, you're done. You're gonna fall through the cracks. You're finished. And guess what? Your social credit system here. Guess how it works, folks? You're just deplatformed, you're censored, your bank accounts are closed, and you can't fly. And you don't even know why. And you have no way to contest it. Let me explain to you how social credit system works. As per the UC Berkeley study, I'm sorry, the, 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 the University of Stanford study, the Stanford study they did on China, China's social credit system, okay? It's something that their population voted on, number one. How does that work? Well, they're a population and a culture that's a meritocracy. You know what that means? That means the best and the brightest get to run things. If they don't run and do a good job of it, they're fired. They're taken out. Okay, they're, they're removed from their position, and somebody else runs in their place. That's how you rise there, number one. Number two, if you don't pay your debt or your bills or you, you default on your credit loan or whatnot in China, guess what? They take you to court. And in a court of law, they have to prove that you're a flunky. And when they prove that in a court of law, then, only then, does it go on your social credit, number one. But the Chinese system, unlike the Western system, where the West says, well, you know what, your, your credit's all effed up. You got a 500 credit score because you did something back when you were 20-something years old. Now you're 40. The way you got to do it, you got to pay your bills on time, and then another 20 years, you, you, your credit score goes up 10 points. You're fucked. Do you understand that, folks? You, you mess up your credit in America or you declare bankruptcy, you are fucked. Unless you know somebody who could really fix your credit. And there's not a lot of people that could do that. Okay? In China, you have an option. You can work to fix it. How do you fix your social credit score? Oh, is this something like Black Mirror? No, it's not like Black Mirror. The way you fix your credit score is you go out and actually do, do, you, you do community service. You help the community, you help your local neighborhoods, you do something charitable, you pay back your bills little by little, and then your score's right back. So there's a way in. you got to really do something stupid to get in there, but there's a way out. There's always a way out. That's the difference. And the Western alt-media morons and the Western mainstream morons, they take this and they make it much more obtuse and much more virulent than it actually is, and they tell you these lies. It's twisted. Do some research. Read the Stanford study. Stanford's an engineering school, okay? There's not, they're not, you know, this is an engineering study. It's a couple hundred pages. It's kind of wordy, 
but take your time and read it. For the love of God, do some research. Folks, let me going on Google and clacking a keyboard ain't research. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Well, yeah, the other thing is go go to China yourself. Yeah, okay, I know that's man. expensive. And some people and the people can't necessarily afford to do so. But if you go to China, you will be shocked. And you won't be shocked in a, oh, this is a much worse than I thought it would be. Big differences. I've been there. I've spent time there. I've worked there. I built relationships with people. And here's one fundamental trait. When do we ever see this? I'm not saying this applies to all Western people. But the fundamental thing that underpins the whole Chinese culture is, is me as a, I'm, I'm, the, I'm currently the parent. I'm going to build a legacy. Even if I have to sweat blood and tears in my own life, I will build a legacy in a future for my children and mm -hmm. my grandchildren so they can sow and reap the benefits from that. That is the ethos of the Chinese uh, uh, culture. Now, is that a bad thing? No. Do people do that in the West? No. Most people are going, how can I, how can I make a, you know, a million dollars today? If I can't make a million dollars today, how can I make it tomorrow? And they don't care who they screw over in the process. And, and how dysfunctional is so much of family life in Western nations now? You, that is the exact opposite to what China does. Now, you try and explain that to, to, to Western people, and, they do, and a lot of them glaze over. They go, what? So, and, and I do. I know personally know families who've worked really hard. They work 70 hours a week to allow to give their children an education, to pay their student fees, and to give them a better prospects and they, they, to, for them in the future so they could benefit. Because their attitude is, if you every generation improves, that benefits the family or the individual. It benefits the family. It benefits the people they interact with. It benefits their local region. It benefits the nation. That's the core at the heart of how Chinese people think. And that is something the West can't comprehend because we're all, I want it now. Now, it's like a child. I, I use this analogy it's like a child at Christmas. Where's my presents? Where's my presents? I want my Christmas present. I want my birthday present. I want it now. Give it to me now. And then if they don't get it, they'll have a tantrum. Well, that's equivalently how people in the West behave. And all Chinese, all Chinese people and their society want is for people to say, okay, we're not saying you should do it this way, but this is how we do it and respect the fact that we believe that's the way. Well, my attitude is that, that that is a good thing to do. If you want to try and improve your nation, you have to keep progressing. Yep. And that's what China's done for decades. That's why China has made these gigantic leaps forward, because it keeps improving nation to nation. And and you make the point, CJ, and this is absolutely true. In local government, right, there are people put into local government, which is quite democratic in, in China. And they'll say to them, right, there's this region. We need to take people out of poverty. Right, you're going to build houses. You're going to put uh, sanitation. You put electricity in. You're going to do this in X number of weeks. Not, well, we'll sit in a planning committee for three years. Then we'll navel gaze. And maybe someone will give us a brown envelope with a bribe in it. And then we'll build something. They're told to do it. And if these people don't do it, they'll come out and send inspectors out and go, and you failed to do the job, you sacked. Get someone yep. else in who's going to do the job. And exactly. because of that, they get things done and they've built whole communities, taken them out of poverty, given them a better quality of life. And why? Because 
when you improve a nation and you take people out of poverty, you put them into a in a better job situation, you give them better security, you 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 provide them a better quality of life. That benefits the nation. That is a exactly. and, and those are things enigma we to Western Paul. people. Exactly. And those are things that we could learn from that we need to we need to emulate. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're at the end of the broadcast. I'll just say this before we go. Folks, you live in a country where you have the military walking around vaccinating people. Literally, no joke. You're in a country where vaccines are being deployed, and we don't even know what the long-term side effects are. Okay, we're literally creating a two-class system here in this country. You're living in, in, in a country where GMOs are shoved down your throat. Your water is filled with fluoride and God knows what else. Your cancer rates are through the roof. You have the highest, you have the highest level of the most medicated people on planet Earth with the highest amount of psychotropic use. You're, people are talking about air and water. What about, what about your air and water? What about the fact that Flint, Michigan has lead in the water and they still haven't fixed that? And Flint is just one of several cities all across the United States. You have failing infrastructure. Your kids are the bottom of the barrel in the developed world when it comes to education and understanding and smarts. You're the most unhealthiest people on the planet. For the love of God, in terms of industrial nations, we're on the bottom. And we have the audacity to sit there and be like, wake up. Wake up and demand better from your leadership. Demand better. Start doing something for yourself and for your nation, for your country, for your neighborhoods, and for your local populations, folks. God, we need to have a lot of work to do. Paul, we're out of time, so you just got to run. Just one point, just very ahead, one, quick, one quick point. What, what, I think my understanding of what I would define as patriotism is very different from a lot of people's idea of patriotism. Patriotism to me is, is a collective responsibility to each other as people in the nation to, to help each other for, for, to make people's life, lives better, their quality of life better. Patriotism isn't standing there saying, I'm proud to be American because my nation's bombing some nation in another part of the world. That's not patriotism. Patriotism should be about where we collectively in a nation go, what can we do to make people's lives better? And what can we do things in our generation that in 50, 100 years, people will reap the benefits and actually think that that's a good idea? That's surely the heart of it should be the nub of, of what a nation is. And we don't have that. That's patriotism to me. Okay, that's, an, that's my opinion. That is an opinion. But I think that's a far better way to approach patriotism because I think there's a lot of people's perspective, particularly in the US and not exclusively, where there's a skewed idea of what patriotism means. And I don't think it's patriotism that benefits the American people. It's actually patriotism that benefits the lunatics who implement horrendous international policy and domestic policy that doesn't benefit a single American for all the reasons we've discussed and, and, and obviously V's just alluded to. Absolutely. Very well said. Folks, thank you all for listening in. It's been a, a great discussion here with London Paul. You can go check him out at seriousreport.com. And with that being said, CJ, take it away. <laughs>